Part One Storybook I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgotten all custom of exercise. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. Apt words which the man had been unable to drive out of his head since the night before. Only weeks ago, he and his smiling wife had stood together, transfixed, listening intently to the player's lines being delivered over the din of a raucous playhouse, just upriver from the churchyard where he now stood. John Rolfe dropped the bundle of daffodils on the fresh grave of his young wife and turned away. He lifted his face to the grey London sky, grateful for the persistent March rain which washed the tears from his face. The little boy, holding tightly to his hand, had already seen enough sadness during his two and a half years on earth. Roth squatted down in order to address his son at eye level. Your father must once more away to Virginia. I cannot bring you. It is too dangerous. I will send for you when you are older and our fortune is made. The child's wide eyes displayed no sign of understanding. When is mummy coming back? The man let go his son's hand and took the boy's small face and cupped it gently but firmly between his palms. Tommy, hear my words. Mummy is now gone to heaven and please God, you will meet her there again one day. But not too soon. Not yet, son. Rolf stood again and stared down the gossiping eyes of the black-clad mourners who stood whispering in groups at the edge of St. George's churchyard. A widower again at only 32 years of age, with two wives buried. Sarah seven years ago in the dank heat of Bermuda, and now Rebecca, here in the misty chill of England. Both wives were buried far from the places of their births, but both had known with certainty where to call home. Rolf, for his part, felt like a man out of place wherever he found his feet planted. A simple businessman from Norfolk, he had only been tolerated in London society due to the celebrity of his dear Rebecca. Rebecca born Matawaka of the Powhatan, later called Pocahontas by a doting father who was disarmed by her laughing, mischievous nature. Rolf had agonized and prayed for guidance from Providence for many long weeks before marrying his second wife. The company had noticed Rolf and the young girl's interactions, and it was the company who had first suggested a marriage a marriage would be good for business, ensuring peace between the company and the Powhatan Confederacy. Rebecca had even agreed to accept Christian baptism and a Christian name in order to marry her Englishman. But Rolf knew her heart had still carried the secrets and mysteries of her own gods. Rolf had, of course, expected whispering and muttering for marrying a so-called savage. What he had not expected was the harsher judgment he had received for marrying above his station. The vicious class system permeating the English court was scandalized by the idea of a mere commoner, a trader, being wed to royalty, whether that royalty be English, foreign, or savage. Rolf's simple, genuine affection for the girl was of no bearing, but of much consequence. Rolf also knew that without his celebrity wife on his arm, 
England would provide no warm hearth for him to raise a young half-blood son. He remembered Becky's last words whispered between racking fits of coughing. All must die, but it is enough that our child lives. Virginia. Dangerous, blood-soaked Virginia. Londoners might not have warmed to John Rolfe, but they had warmed to the tobacco sent from his plantation in America. And God willing, the peace of Pocahontas would survive her untimely death, and the name of Rolfe would prosper from the sandy soil of Virginia. Go south in all haste, Hovannis, to your uncle in Tehran. Hovo's father pushed bags of copper folus into the saddlebags on each side of the horse, the better for balance. Take the silks and collect all that are ready in Tehran. Guard the coins well and speak to no one on the road. When you are loaded safely in Tehran, head west to Baghdad. Use the money to make your purchases there and continue on to Damascus and Smyrna. When you have sold the silks, send word by returning caravan of your safety. God willing, we might join you in Smyrna one day. Go now. Go! Hovo, barely 13 years old, turned one last time to see his father being held up by the men either side of him, weeping uncontrollably a broken man. That was over 17 years ago, and sitting here in his office in London, Hovo knew he would never see his father again in this world. The wars between the Turks and the Persians had raged around the Armenian people of Jolfa for years, like storms in season. But Hovo's family had always managed to survive by smiling at the Turk at the front door and bribing the Persian at the back door. The delicate balance had ended 17 years ago. Shah Abbas had finally won a decisive victory over the Turks, and in order to secure his northern border along the Aras River, he had decreed that all Armenians in Julfa would be evacuated and moved south of the river to the great new city of Esfahan. Shah Abbas had no intention of allowing the wealth generated by Armenian silk makers to fall into Turkish hands. Soldiers on horseback had arrived within a fortnight of the Persian victory and given over 3,000 families just days to collect their belongings and begin the long walk south. In disbelief, many had ignored this order. They had seen their city change hands too many times before. But then, like a thunderstorm, the cavalry of the Shah had fallen upon Jofa only days later, hunting women and children out of doorways at sword and spear point as other soldiers torched the houses behind them. Hovo's father and brothers had hurried to the stables to lead out the terrified horses while his mother and cousins had frantically gathered anything they or the horses might carry. They had arrived at the river that evening, expecting rafts and barges to ferry them across. There were none. As they gathered together to set up tents and cooking fires for the night, the soldiers had begun shouting, digging their heels into their horses' flanks, causing the animals to charge toward the people and livestock who were milling in the shallows along the riverbank. As their women and children waded into the current, Armenian men dropped to their knees in supplication, some begging for mercy, others wailing prayers into the sky. Your Christ does not hear you, shouted one officer. Swim with your animals across, now, or die where you kneel. Dumbstruck and incredulous, the men rose and walked slowly backwards, before turning to try and help their wives quieten the rearing and plunging horses which were now entering the rushing water. Children too young to hold on for themselves were tied to the backs of animals, the men trying to swim while holding the lead ropes. Many, many had drowned in the dark twilight waters that terrible evening, 
Hovo's mother was one among them. Until the day he died, his sleep would be broken by nightmares, replaying the sight of her upraised grasping and clenching hands as she sank beneath the oily current, her beautiful robes billowing up over her head and spreading upon the surface of the river like a giant water lily. Hovhannes had made it safely to the eastern Mediterranean seaport of Smyrna nearly a year later, a trek of over 1,300 miles. The boy was put to work by his extended family, working on the docks, loading silks and otherwares bound for Italy, France, Spain, and the Netherlands. Possessing a good ear, he quickly learned the rudiments of the languages spoken by the foreign sailors and merchants. At the end of every week over the next two years, he would ask his in-laws whether word of his father had arrived with the latest caravans. And every week, the young man was met with an apologetic shrug and a look of pity, until one spring day he was called into the house of his cousin George. Expecting news of his father, Hovo was startled by something different altogether. Hovo? The family needs you to travel with the merchant Allo to Amsterdam. Praise God, we've made a good piece of business. Allo will be bringing 100 mulberry trees and crates of silkworms to an English merchant there, and Master Allo would be greatly comforted and honoured to have you as an interpreter and advisor in this exchange. Before Hovo could gather his thoughts, George added, it may arise that you must travel thence onwards to London to assist with the care of these trees and to explain the mysteries of silk production to the English. You will bring great honour upon the house of Martin and your account will be rewarded greatly. And so it was that Hovhannes Martiros of Old Julfa had become the first of his family to travel beyond the Mediterranean Sea. And more than this, he had traveled onward again from London to the New World, where the English had made a settlement among the pagans there, a settlement which they called Virginia. An observant and intelligent young man, Hovo had quickly learned to distrust the smooth-talking Persians of Tehran and the hustling Turks of Smyrna. But nothing had prepared him for the vulgarity and duplicity of the English. They were not interested in making good business with the people of Powhatan. They sought only to trade cheap, worthless baubles for food and furs and any other thing of greater value. And when the pagans refused to trade, the English simply took, more often than not, at the point of a gun or sword. The English also plundered at sea. Hovo had been made to sail out with the English and watched from the deck as their crew intercepted a vessel bound for Mexico, hoping to rob it of victuals, weapons and more. Instead, they found a couple dozen terrified Portuguese Angolan Christians who had been kidnapped by slave traders. Instead of treating them as rescued fellow Christians, however, the English had divided these Negroes like mere oxen among themselves back at James City to act as servants to the lazy colonists. He had assumed that fellow Christians would behave as Christians in all places, but no. It pained Hovo to admit that the Mohammedan Persians and Turks were far more civilized than the unbathed English, with their brawling, their unchristian oaths and drunken rages, foul breath always emanating from their mouths full of rotten teeth. And yet, amusingly, it was they who treated him, Hovhannes, as the inferior. For the sake of business, he had quickly learned to smile and deploy exaggerated forms of flattery which appealed to their vanity and sense of superiority. But today, just this once, sitting on the edge of the divan near the window looking out on the streets of London, Hovo read the news from Virginia with a great melancholy. 
The pagans had risen up as one, and in one terrible day of rage had wrought a great slaughter upon the English. Uninterested in the English women of James City, and with them equally uninterested in him, Hovo had taken a lover from among the Nansimons two years ago, wooing her with gifts of silk and perfumes. He had convinced her father to allow her to live with him among the English, where she had bore him a son. Hovo scanned the missive with shaking hands, but he already knew that the English would not consider her and her infant, if indeed among the dead, even worth counting. Only on the final page listing the dead did Hovhannes see a familiar name, the name of the only Englishman he had counted as a friend and like-minded colleague in Virginia, John Rolfe. I'm Brian Halpin. Welcome to the time before we were white. Part two, matrimony and mayhem. For many decades now, the story of the arrival of pilgrims in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620 has served as America's favored foundation myth, overshadowing Jamestown's status as settlement ground zero for what would eventually become the United States of America. Many Americans might be forgiven for thinking that Jamestown and Plymouth were the earliest European settlements in what would later become the continental U.S., of course, this is not true. St. Augustine, in present-day Florida, has been continuously inhabited since its foundation in 1565, well over four decades prior to the establishment of the place called James Fort, or Jamestown, or James City, depending on who's writing. But as a Spanish endeavor, St. Augustine is not a good fit in the steady and linear preferred narrative of a white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant American history. In fact, Jamestown wasn't even the first English settlement in North America, as we learned in episode two. Jamestown was named for the successor to Queen Elizabeth I, and this James was the same king who was simultaneously attempting to ethnically cleanse and resettle entire regions of Ireland. But unlike the plantation of Ulster, Jamestown wasn't established with any intention of making North America into West Britain, at least not at first. At its inception, the Jamestown project wasn't even administered or funded by King James himself, a man somewhat preoccupied by other things, such as the wars in Ireland, trying to end another ongoing and costly war with Spain, publishing a new English language Bible, and writing guidebooks on how best to deal with the witches and demons he believed were plaguing the British Isles. Jamestown was a business venture, plain and simple. King James had offered a charter to two groups of speculators, called adventurers in the time of Shakespeare, as in venture capitalists. The charter would allow the setup of two joint stock companies for the purpose of establishing trading colonies in the place recently explored and named Virginia, in honor of James's predecessor, Elizabeth, the so-called Virgin Queen. As odd as it may seem to us today, English people, as born subjects of a monarch, could not simply leave England and no longer be considered subjects of the crown. An English subject remained a subject wherever they went, whatever they did at least insofar as the monarch was able to enforce this legal subjection with well-armed loyalist boots on the ground. So if an English company wished to set up a business in, say, Africa, Persia, India, or the New World, the company required the granting of explicit permission from the monarch, or a royal charter. 
and with the generosity and hubris which only a king can display, James I of England had waved a royal hand over a crude map and awarded the eastern seaboard of North America to a gang of speculators called the Virginia Company. The company would undertake all the financial risk and if things went well, James would reap many of the benefits and a good share of the profits. The shareholders in what would quickly come to be called the Virginia Companies of London and Plymouth were not farmers, nor were they skilled manufacturers or indeed particularly experienced traders. For the most part, they were a group of dandies and gentlemen, as in gentility or landed gentry. The company included a few soldiers and guns for hire for handling the rough stuff ex-mercenaries and pirates, such as Captain John Smith. Yes, that Captain Smith. A man in later years fond of writing memoirs which included tales of the many women who had been so smitten by his charms that they were willing to risk their own lives to save his. Captain Smith's dotage daydreams would later be taken up in popular culture as fact. The underclasses who were brought along to do essential work, coopering, carpentry, blacksmithing, cooking, etc., included a number of people who would today be referred to euphemistically as men known to the authorities. It is not remotely inaccurate to describe the entire venture as a dodgy, get-rich-quick scheme. Just like Columbus over 100 years before them, the men of the Virginia Company came first and foremost in search of gold and silver, and secondarily with an eye on finding valuable trade goods while, fingers crossed, also establishing a new trade route to the Far East. It was about money. All about the money. Prior to the arrival of the English, most, but not all, of the tribes living along these rivers had been consolidated into a confederacy under Wahun Sunakuk, better known to history by the name Chief Powhatan, father of Pocahontas. The men of the Virginia Company were not making first European contact with the Algonquian peoples living in towns along the rivers of Sinacomoco, the original name for Virginia, the Powhatan and their tributary tribes were of course well aware of the attempted English settlement at nearby Roanoke 20 years earlier. Those earlier failed English colonists at Roanoke were themselves not even the first Europeans to stamp their own new place name on the southeastern seaboard of North America. This coast had been explored by the Spanish as early as 1521 and the Spanish had claimed it and called it the province of Ajacan. In 1521, a wealthy Spanish sugar plantation owner from Caribbean Hispaniola called Lucas Vasquez de Ayon had dispatched some ships to raid the Bahamas for indigenous slaves, but finding the population of those islands already decimated, the ship's captains continued north, exploring the North American coast kidnapping dozens of Siouan people from present-day South Carolina, seeking to return them to Hispaniola and a life of enslavement. Most died of ill-treatment and starvation long before they could be divided out among the Spanish. But after speaking to the ship's captains and to a native captive called Francisco de Chicora, a boy who had learned Spanish, De Ion became excited by the prospect of riches to the north, and by 1526 had gathered a colonization party of around six or 700 people to attempt a permanent settlement on the east coast of North America, a settlement which he would call San Miguel de Gualdalpe, St. Michael of the Guale. This party included women, children, and the first African slaves in North America, almost a full century before Africans would arrive at Jamestown. The settlement was a disaster. De Ayon himself perished within months 
and the colony was racked by indigenous hostilities, starvation, factionalism, cannibalism, and mutiny. The Africans at San Miguel de Gualdape appear to have launched the earliest slave insurrection in North American history. Slaves burnt down the house of the Spanish leader of one faction, the faction wanting to abandon the settlement and return to Hispaniola. Some scholars believe that these Africans fled to live among the peoples along the PD River, along with the native interpreter, Francisco de Chicora. What is certain is that only about 150 of the original six or 700 colonists returned to Hispaniola. A couple of decades later, and some years before the English attempt to settle at Roanoke, another Spaniard exploring this coast, probably Juan Menendez Marquez, would exchange a Spanish boy for an interpreter guide from one of the villages of Sinacomoco. This Powhatan interpreter, called by the Spanish Don Luis de Velasco, traveled extensively from his home in Sinacomoco to Mexico City and on to Spain before returning 10 years later to his homeland with a group of black robes or Jesuits who hoped to found a non-militarized mission among the Indians of Ayacán, just as they had been doing among the conquered and dispossessed Moors of Spain. Don Luis de Velasco, just as Francisco de Chicora had done years earlier, would flee to his own people once back on familiar home ground. In 1571, during a time of hunger and drought in the region, Don Luis would return with some of his people to rob and kill these Jesuits, sparing only a young Spanish servant boy. Some believe that this Don Luis was none other than Opechanacanach, half-brother of Wahun Sunachuk, father of Pocahontas, a man with an almost visceral abiding hatred of Europeans. It would be easy to fill three podcast episodes with tales of the violence and intrigue which occurred between 1609 and 1644 during the three Anglo-Powhatan Wars. And perhaps one day we will revisit this extraordinary period. But for now, it is enough to understand a few key points. The English speculators had arrived woefully unprepared for a life of self-reliance in Virginia. Their own sense of superiority made them believe that Powhatan would accept being made a subject of King James, and he would thus agree to feed and supply the colonists as part of his tribute as a mere minor underling prince, now subject to the king of the English Scots and Irish. Within two years of 1607, colonists were dropping dead of typhoid and dysentery from drinking Virginia swamp water. With the Powhatan unable and unwilling to serve and feed them, they were soon starving and reduced to robbing and raiding tribal Powhatan stores. When theft failed, they boiled and ate their own shoe leather, or rats, and even their own dead. The Powhatan themselves were not flying blind. As we have already heard, they had been aware of Europeans, European greed, and European slave raiders for decades. And yet, the Powhatan concept of war remained completely different to that of the English. Much like the Irish and Northmen over the water, the Algonquian tribes of Virginia practiced a highly ritualized form of warfare based on raiding and prize-taking. Neither the Gales, the Vikings, nor the Powhatan waged wars of extermination or complete subjugation. While not seeking to glamorize Powhatan violence, it seems that war for these people served almost a social purpose offering a pressure release valve for young warriors to win captives and booty, to achieve status, and to prove their courage and skill, all while keeping competitor tribes in check. War captives enslaved by such societies were not treated as subhuman, 
nor were they worked to death for financial profit. Over time, many war captives were in fact adopted into tribes. Seen in this light, the violence instigated against Jamestown colonists by Powhatan, and especially by his successor Apichanakanoch, were neither uprisings nor declarations of war to a bitter end. These were punitive raids, a rebalancing meant to put the English back in their place. The English, on the other hand, treated war as a winner-takes-all endeavor in which the victor becomes eternal master over the losers and beneficial owner of their homes, towns, and lands. Jamestown men such as Edward Wingfield, George Percy, and Richard Crofts had cut their teeth in the Irish Wars and would have seen virtually no difference between Gaelic or Powhatan savages, except perhaps in the greater degree of contempt they reserved for the Gales, after years of bloody Irish resistance to English rule. In 1610, one year into the First Anglo-Powhatan War, Barnaby Rich would be vehement in his denunciation of certain savages. Quote, the time hath been when they lived like barbarians, in woods, in bogs, and in desolate places, without politic law or civil government, neither embracing religion, law, or mutual love. That which is hateful to all the world besides is only beloved and embraced. I mean civil wars and domestic dissensions, the cannibals, devourers of men's flesh, do learn to be fierce amongst themselves, without all respect, are even more cruel to their neighbors. Unquote. The savages being described in the foregoing passage were in fact the Irish, not the Powhatan, but the sentiment serves to illustrate the contemporary English ability to demonize through propaganda exaggeration, and outright lies any people with the temerity to defend their own lands. Under the English conception of colonization and war, the vanquished had only four options. Death, servitude, becoming second-class English people, or being exiled. Many of the English colonizers in Virginia actively stoked tensions, seeking for conflict, which might serve to morally justify the extermination, subjugation, or removal of indigenous people. And the English who were spoiling for a fight, got their fight. Between 1609 and 1644, three major episodes of arms conflict would rage up and down the river systems of eastern Virginia. Following the particularly brutal Powhatan raid of 1622, the English were relentless in their own retaliatory raids for months afterwards, burning Powhatan crops and villages. Seeking some respite in order to plant crops, Opechanachnock sued for peace the following spring holding around two dozen mostly female English captives and thinking the English equally weary of fighting, the Powhatan believed that the simple return of some captives would lead to a truce. The Powhatan were soon to learn that vengeance meant more to the English than their own women. While proposing a toast at a meeting to seal this renewed peace, the English under Captain William Tucker, served the Powhatan poisoned wine before opening fire on them. Scores were poisoned, wounded, or slain. Opechanachanoch himself was injured and barely escaped with his life. At summer's end, the English would help themselves to the crops sown that spring by the Powhatan. A year later, this very same Captain Tucker would lend his name to the first African child born in Anglo-America, 
a child of Tucker's indentured servants, Antony and Isabella, who were captured by English pirates and sold into servitude to the Jamestown colonists in 1619. At a distance of 400 years, it is still almost possible to hear Edward Waterhouse gloating after the bloody Powhatan raid of 1622, which killed hundreds of English at Jamestown. Quote, Our hands which before were tied with gentleness and fair usage are now set at liberty, and we may now, by right of war and law of nations, invade their country and enjoy their cultivated places, while reducing the Indians to servitude and drudgery. Unquote. The English would eventually catch up with Opechanacanoch 20 years later, when he was an old man. Opechanacanoch, chieftain and war leader of the Powhatan, would be murdered like a dog by a common soldier while being held prisoner. Of course, many of the people arriving in Jamestown were not monsters devoid of conscience, and John Rolfe was not the only settler there to perceive the humanity of the people of Tsinakamoko. No film has yet been made portraying the life of Henry Spellman, a young man from Norfolk, England, whose contract of indenture to an English master at Jamestown was sold to Parahunt, a brother of Juan Sunacuk, in order that the English might have an interpreter. Spellman spent years trying to safely navigate a double life between the English and Powhatan, before eventually living among another tribe, the Potawomac, in order to escape the dangers of always being caught in the middle. It is more than likely that Henry Spellman was the actual person whose life was saved by the intervention of a young girl called Pocahontas. Perhaps even more astonishing was the life of Stephen Hopkins, the ultimate pot-stirring young man with itchy feet. Hopkins left England in 1609 as an indentured servant and travelled on the not-so-good ship Sea Venture as part of a resupply mission to Jamestown. His co-passengers included Powhatan emissaries to England and our erstwhile tobacco merchant, John Rolfe, on his own first voyage to Virginia. All would survive the hurricane which left the Sea Venture shipwrecked on the island of Bermuda, where Rolfe would later bury his wife. Hopkins would nearly lose his own life sometime later after being sentenced to death for mutiny. His so-called crime was in daring to claim breach of contract. It seems that months of relative freedom on a warm subtropical island of plenty had opened Stephen's eyes to a better vision of his own future. Because he had been contracted to serve in Virginia, Hopkins claimed that being shipwrecked on Bermuda rendered his contract of indenture null and void. His legal point was sound, which is precisely why the leader of the supply armada, Thomas Gates, had Hopkins arrested and sentenced to death, lest his insurrection spread. However, after much pleading by Hopkins and his friends, clemency was eventually granted. Stephen Hopkins would go on to survive many difficulties at Jamestown, moving among the tribes there while teaching himself something of the local indigenous tongue. William Shakespeare would use the events in Bermuda's inspiration for one of his last plays, The Tempest, even name-checking Hopkins in the character of Stefano. Upon the death of his wife Mary in 1613, Hopkins would travel back to England to care for his children, before being contacted a few years later by a group of religious separatists hoping to use his experience and language expertise in setting up their own colony in Virginia. In 1620, Stephen Hopkins would once again find himself on a ship forced to land at an unintended destination. Instead of landing in Virginia, the Mayflower would eventually be forced to drop anchor off a place which became known as Plymouth Rock. Stephen would go on to sign the self-governance document called the Mayflower Compact, 
and became the proprietor of a rowdy tavern in Massachusetts, much to the annoyance of his pilgrim neighbors, who were forced to tolerate his shenanigans due to his great usefulness in their dealings with the local Wampanoag people. All's well that ends well, as the bard himself might say. Within a few years of Christopher Columbus's discovery of Hispaniola in 1492, an island now shared by the nations of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, a complex multi-ethnic population had come into being there, a nexus of Moors, Kalinago, Jews, Romani Gypsies, Spaniards, Taino, West Africans, Portuguese, and more. So much so that the Spanish thought it necessary to create a caste system in order to place all of these new kinds of people into a multi-level hierarchy. This is not so strange when we remember that Spaniards were a product of European society in which every single human being belonged to a rank or class and was thus always answerable to a master above them. Only a king, queen or emperor answered to no one although Catholic popes often beg to differ. And as Catholics, the Spanish, in true Jesuitical fashion, tried to create their caste system through quasi-science, assigning a multiplicity of social rankings according to specific criteria. Amount of Spanish blood, level of adherence to Catholicism, and community standing achieved through military prowess or mercantile success. This multi-ethnic Spanish population did not remain in some sort of ethnic quarantine on Hispaniola. Only one or two generations after 1492, multi-ethnic exploration parties using Mexico, Hispaniola and other Caribbean islands as bases had begun to extend their influence into North America. Once we understand this, Subsequent attempts by the newly arrived English to impose far more limited racial categories in North America, a century after the Spanish arrival there, should be viewed as patently absurd. By the time of Captain Smith and Pocahontas, the indigenous Algonquin peoples of Virginia and the Siouan peoples of the Carolinas had already been in regular contact not only with the Spanish and Portuguese, but also with the many other ethnic groups from Europe, Africa, and Asia who had followed in the wake of Spanish and Portuguese empire building. Yet the English, in their astonishing small island chauvinism, saw only Englishmen and Protestant Christians as the natural rightful lords over every other category of people. Anyone not English or Protestant was simply a foreigner, or a heathen, a papist, a Mohammedan, a red savage, or a negro, or more simply still, humans were Protestant or non-Protestant, English or non-English, noble or common, white or non-white. No need for nuance, no need for a complex caste system. And for the next 400 years, Anyone falling outside of those simple categories in colonial Anglo-America became one or more of three things. Persecuted, enslaved, or invisible. This white, Anglo-centric world 
was wishful thinking from the very outset. We know from contemporary documentation that the following ethnicities were present at Jamestown right at the beginning. From Europe, we had Polish, we had Germans, confusingly called Dutch by the English, we had Swiss, Welsh, actual Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Irish, and French. Also likely to have been there were Swedes, Finns, Belgians, Austrians, and Scots. Non-European ethnicities represented at Jamestown included Turkish people, Armenians, Angolans, and of course the indigenous Algonquin peoples. Unless the inhabitants of Jamestown practiced strict ethnic and sexual apartheid, which they did not, then we must accept that Anglo-America was a melting pot at its very inception. Thousands of pieces of documentation exist which advert to this fact. The problem from our own contemporary vantage point, 400 years later, is that Anglo-centric white supremacist attitudes and laws, which came into force and gained strength over many decades after Jamestown, have always pretended that this early melting pot somehow excluded people of color. It did not. Traders took native partners. European indentured servants slept with Africans. European women were regularly carried away into captivity among the indigenous peoples where many bore mixed ethnic children. Africans ran away to live with indigenous communities. Sailors from almost everywhere had trysts with girls in every port. The increased inter-ethnic mixing which came with the age of European exploration clearly began to enter the wider social consciousness back in Europe. And with his finger ever on the public pulse, the issue was confronted head-on by Shakespeare in his play Othello. Long before the end of the 1600s, Colonial Virginia was home to huge numbers of mixed ethnic brown folks. And for 400 years, the elites who governed Virginia under both English and American flags would never stop trying to stuff the genie back into the bottle. All of these gainfully employed free brown people represented a constant living reproach to the concept of racial purity which was essential for underpinning the twisted logic of race-based slavery and white superiority. For the slaveholding classes in particular, there could be zero doubt. Every soul in the Commonwealth of Virginia would need to be black or white, slave or free. Multi-ethnic brown people would need to be erased from existence. This would be achieved either by actual forced exile to frontier lands beyond the borders of Virginia, or by turning them into white folks. That is to say, white folks on government paper. Adolf Hitler had certain people he respected and admired. People he relied upon for advice in his efforts to create a Third Reich populated solely by an Aryan master race. Walter Gross, director of Hitler's Bureau of Human Betterment and Eugenics, was one of these people. A man who, in 1935, would not have been surprised to find a letter in the post from the Virginia Bureau of Vital Statistics. The registrar of the Virginia Bureau was a small and unassuming, bespectacled physician named Walter Ashby Plecker, and he wished to be kept abreast of any developments in the field of German eugenics or race hygiene. In 1932, Plecker himself had given a keynote speech at the Third International Conference on Eugenics at New York's Natural History Museum. Among those attending was Ernst Rüden, who was unanimously elected president of the International Federation of Eugenics Organizations. The very next year, 1933, 
Brüden would help form the German Expert Committee on Questions of Population and Racial Policy. By 1937, Brüden would be a card-carrying Nazi. Walter Plecker of Virginia was not shy about sharing his own advice and expertise with the Nazis. After all, it was Plecker who had drafted and lobbied for the passage of Virginia's own Racial Integrity Act of 1924. An open and avowed white supremacist, Plecker had become consumed by a belief that the white race was becoming irredeemably contaminated by the inferior genes of non-Nordic peoples, especially people of African ancestry. The Racial Integrity Act had explicitly outlawed marriage between blacks and whites, but Plecker remained deeply troubled by Virginia's large population of brown people, many of whom self-identified as being the descendants of various indigenous Virginia tribes. After the founding of Jamestown, the subsequent decades and centuries of hunger, poverty, disease, land loss, slavery, and racism in Virginia had caused innumerable persecuted groups to intermarry and coalesce in order to survive. Many of these communities on the margins included people of complex ancestry, which of course included African ancestry. Racists like Walter Plecker were alarmed at the idea of African blood entering the white race by stealth. For example, via people who were culturally Chickahominy and self-identifying as such, but possessing a portion of African ancestry. Plecker set about committing what has since been called paper genocide, in which anyone suspected of having even one drop of remote African ancestry was no longer permitted to register as anything other than black. Furthermore, Plecker and his minions went back into the birth record archives, retroactively altering documentation which might have shown indigenous or complex ancestry. Only being knocked down and killed by a car as he stepped off a curb in 1946 managed to put an end to Plecker's poisonous reign. But unfortunately, the damage had been done. Virginia's Racial Integrity Act had essentially erased the indigenous and multi-ethnic populations of Virginia from existence, and the melting pot legacy of Jamestown's early years was buried. All Virginians were now black or white, at least on government paper. Colonizers the world over have always realized that breaking the link to ancestral memory is the key to breaking the resistance offered by the colonized. As early as 1620, George Thorpe had arrived in Jamestown as part of a concerted attempt to convert the Indians to Christianity and to European ideas of civility. Thorpe had even tried to convert Opechanakanoch himself and had quickly set about formulating plans allowing for the removal of Powhatan children from their villages for Anglo re-education. Sounds eerily familiar to events still happening in certain places today. Efforts to assimilate the Indians of Virginia into the Jamestown venture were met with resistance on both sides. As Thorpe Riley noted at the time, quote, There is scarce any man among us, the colonists, that doth so much as afford the Indians a good thought in his heart. And most men with their mouths give them nothing but maledictions and bitter execrations. Unquote. But even where custom, culture, and folk memory are not fully obliterated by colonizers, those treasures of self identity are left damaged and fragmented. This damage means that oral history can be simultaneously empowering and destructive. Oral history can preserve the traditions of non-elite or non-literate people, but oral history, just like official history, 
can also ignore, gloss over, or whitewash those things we wish to conceal or forget, sometimes frightful things. Many children of the Pamunkey, Chickahominy, Nansimund, Rappahannock, and other brown peoples of Virginia have carried some knowledge of their origins up to the present day. Others, especially those brown people whose survival strategy was assimilation, would learn to actively deny their origins, slowly constructing an alternative mythological past over many generations and wearing it like a suit of armor in a world hostile to non-whites. Of course, many other families simply forgot their own history in the day-to-day struggle to stay alive on the battlefield of Manifest Destiny. This loss of ancestral memory and a clear sense of belonging and cultural continuum is perhaps the most enduringly painful and pernicious legacy of colonialism. Lucky for us, we now live in an age where oral traditions can be placed alongside other forms of historical testimony, vast amounts of which are now digitized and widely available online. This is how we can also know that the descendants of multi-ethnic Jamestown still live among us today. Surnames associated with Jamestown can be tracked and traced on their centuries-long journey from Virginia into southern Appalachia and beyond, using war records, land records, Bible entries, court records, wills, and census returns. Surnames like Pennington, Emery, Garrett, Prophet, Gore, Ratliff, Archer, Jeffries. Some family names like Bass or Nickens from the time of Jamestown, names still found from Virginia to Tennessee to California, can actually be traced directly back to the Pamunkey and Rappahannock villages arrayed along the rivers of eastern Virginia in 1607. But we must beware. Surnames in America can hide as much as they reveal. It is worth bearing in mind that America, perhaps to a greater degree than most nations, is a land of people with borrowed and anglicized surnames. Within four or five generations of the founding of Jamestown, Anglo-America had become an ethnic kaleidoscope of peoples from five continents. Nansimund, sailors and weavers from India, Taino, Armenian silk growers, Mashpi, Portuguese Christian slaves and Lanzado slave traders from Angola and Madagascar, Wampanoag, Romani gypsies, Shawnee, Dutch Jews from South America, Tuscarora, Menorcans, Catawba, Greeks, Lenap, French Micmac, Métis. This list is far from exhaustive. And yet, over 90% of these non-Anglo peoples eventually ended up with English surnames. Attempting to tie so many intermixed ethnicities into neat bundles called white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Indian, or black, required an aggressive form of cognitive dissonance, especially on the part of later elite families of Virginia, who were well aware of their non-white ancestry. You see, that little boy left behind in England by John Rolfe in 1617? He would grow up and return to Virginia. Young Thomas Rolfe would marry there, prosper, have children and grandchildren, and grow old. His children and descendants would intermarry with other wealthy families such as the Bolings and Randolphs, forming an elite land and slaveholding class later known as the First Families of Virginia. Families with friends and neighbors like Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, and a man also much given to multi-ethnic mixing as his many black and brown descendants can attest. This situation would end up causing a certain amount of embarrassment and consternation by the time our busy little pen-pushing racist and eugenicist Walter Plecker came on the scene. 
Plecker's insistence that there were only black or white people in Virginia and that anyone claiming Indian ancestry was a black imposter placed these first families of Virginia in a pickle. And as so often happens when big money bumps up against ideology, ideology is bent to suit and hypocrisy wins the day. The Virginia legislature was forced to amend its Racial Integrity Act, making exceptions for whites of mixed descent who claimed their Native American ancestry through the wife of John Rolfe. Law journals today still refer to this amendment as the Pocahontas exception. Needless to say, there would be no such legal exceptions for the multi-ethnic poor. And still, hope for a better future of social justice is as much a part of our nature as wickedness. To borrow the words of a Spanish contemporary of Shakespeare named Cervantes, writing in his 1605 masterpiece Don Quixote, for neither good nor evil can last forever. And so it follows that as evil has lasted a long time, good must now be close at hand. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by me, Brian Halpin, with sound engineering by John Wilkinson and theme music performed by Dave McLaughlin and Ray Cohen. We'd like to extend a very, very special thanks this episode to supporters like Leanne Gwynne Hall and Kathy Ellis, whose generosity has helped to keep this show on the road. If you enjoyed listening and would like to help ensure further episodes, please consider supporting us by visiting beforewewerewhite.com. Thank you.